Well, we are, uh, I can, you know, speak for myself and for my family. We're very thankful uh, to be here, uh, to serve with you here. And we thank you and appreciate your uh, love for us and your gifts to us. Um, so thank you very much. Uh, if you would, please, uh, I guess, stay for cupcakes afterwards. Uh, and now let's, let's turn to the Gospel of John. Turn to the Gospel of John. And I'll be reading verses six, uh, chapter 6, verses 60 through 66. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 66. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascending where he was before. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some among you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. I'll stop the reading there. Let's uh, briefly pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. <clears throat> we ask that you would uh, please help us now, Lord, as we turn our attention to the scriptures to grow and to profit from your word. May we, Lord, not grumble and complain. Work by your Spirit to enable us to understand your hard sayings. And may we embrace them fully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> And here in the Gospel of John now, we arrive to, this is the end of the Bread of Life discourse. This chapter began with Jesus feeding the 5,000. And after he fed the 5,000, he crosses over the sea. And he is in a synagogue teaching. He's followed by some of the 5,000. And they begin to, to ask him questions. In particular, n note with me. <clears throat> in verse 28. In verse 28. What shall we do, they asked Jesus, that we may work the works of God? What 
may we do that we may work the works of God? And here at verse 28, really, is where the body of the discourse, it picks up of this discussion, this back and forth between Jesus and the crowd. This is really where it starts. And beginning at this place, really what we have is just a series of offenses that are taken up by the people because of what Jesus tells them. And their offense grows and grows and grows to the point where they no longer want to follow him. I left off reading at verse 65, but look at verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. You would think, right, Jesus would be a better communicator. He would be more effective. He'd be kindler, gentler, meeker, right? Gentleman Jesus, who never offends anyone. But that is not the case. That is not the case at all. When Jesus says to them, in answer to their question, what may we do that we may work the works of God, Jesus says in verse 29, believe in him who God sent. And here you have the offense of faith. The call to faith for an unregenerate person is offensive. What you're telling, in essence, an unbeliever is that you must trust in this man so that you can have a right standing with God you, you, you must come out of yourself. You have to uh, abandon yourself and, and all, of your, your, all of your beauty and your intelligence and all of your righteousness and all of your money and all of your virtues and all of the things that you have in this world. You, you have to put them in a huge pile and count them as rubbish and entrust yourself fully to this man. That is the work that you have to do. Believe in me. Believe in me. And when he says this to them, what do they say? Well, if you want us to believe in you, Moses gave us manna in the desert. See how offensive it is? We've seen what you can do, but it's not as great as Moses. Right? They're, they're comparing Jesus now with Moses. There's this offense. You're saying that we have to believe in you. But the work that you've done is so, so minimal, so, so minuscule compared to the 40 years in the desert. Not only that, Jesus ups the ante. Jesus doesn't back down. Jesus doesn't say to them that you must just believe in me as, as a moral teacher and as somebody that maybe can provide magically bread for you. Look at verses 41 and 42. After Jesus tells them that he came down from heaven, he adds to this, not only must you believe in me, but you must believe that I came down from heaven. The Jews then complained, they murmured, they grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? And here you have the offense of the incarnation. The incarnation is also offensive. 
Because not only must we believe that Christ is our only hope, but we must believe that this man is also God. And the things that are secret to us and unknowable to us, particularly who God the Father is, Jesus himself fully reveals and gives to us. Yes, we can read the Old Testament and we can find out many great and grand things about the God of heaven. But it is in the Son and explicitly in the Son that the Father is revealed. In past times, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, who is the expressed image of His likeness and radiance of His glory is what the author to the book of Hebrews says. He's spoken to us in Christ. John 1.18, God, uh, the Son comes to declare who the Father is. And that is an offense. That's particularly to the Jewish people, that was an offense because they had the oracles of God. And he is saying to them, you don't know him. I have come to reveal him to you. And today, uh, to modern people, you know, with all the, the technology that we have, right? If your pastor's uh, uh, preaching a sermon and he says that a particular Greek word means something, you can fact check him in a couple of seconds, you know? And you can put under his, uh, you know, Facebook post, this information is not accurate, you know, fact check. <laughs> um, that Greek word doesn't mean that. Uh, with all of the information that we have, we think, no, we could ascend to heaven. We could discover who God is. We, we, we know we don't need a man from space to come down and to reveal to us the secrets of God. We're, we continue in the same foolishness and folly that these Jews lived in. Man continues to live in absolute darkness. And the only light, the light that came into this world, is fully rejected by the world. Fully rejected. Because the incarnation is an offense. In essence, we are so blind we are so dead in trespasses and sins. We are so sinful that only God himself could come to speak to us, to reveal the truth that we need a Savior. Now, not only is faith an offense, Verses 28 and following. Not only is the incarnation an offense, verses 41 and following. But now at verse 52, we find out that his substitutionary death is an offense. That is offensive also. Look at verse 52. Verse 52. This is right before. Well, let's, let the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves. Now they're fighting with each other. Not only are they complaining, grumbling so, sort of amongst each other. Now they're fighting. Well, what's, the, what's going on here? Uh, how, could this, how, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It, they, they are uh, purposefully trying to misunderstand him. Look at what he says in verse 51. The bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. 
substitutionary death. This is what you must feed on. This is what will sustain you spiritually and give you the life that is requisite to enter heaven. My death. And that is offensive. Faith is offensive. The incarnation is offensive. But substitutionary death is also offensive. In essence, Jesus is saying, you are not pure enough. You are not righteous enough. There is no one on earth and no creature in heaven righteous enough to bear the sins that you carry upon your back. Therefore, I, the incarnate God, must come into the world to bear the sins of my people. That's offensive. They take great offense at these things. And now, after Jesus says to them that what their ancestors received was not the true bread, but he is the true bread, that they must not only eat his flesh and drink his blood, not only that, right, uh, of course, giving them this rich image of what the Passover signified, that only by means of my death will the wrath of God pass over you and you be saved. And Jesus adds these things, and then they say, this is a hard saying. Now, this is hard. Who can understand this? Now, that word can, can be taken in two ways, that, that our word there, understand. It can mean either comprehend or bear it. Who can bear this? And uh, there might be, uh, this word might be working double duty. It might mean both. Who can understand this? Because Jesus repeatedly uh, says to the people, you can't understand me. You can't. He says it to them clearly, repeatedly. In John 8, 43, listen to, he asks a question. He says, why do you not understand my speech? Well, you know, uh, you talk too fast. You've got a really thick Galilean accent, and I can't understand you. You know, that twang, you know, the, the fact that you don't use H's is really frustrating. No, none of that. Because you are not able to listen to my words. You can't listen to what I'm saying. That is why you don't understand my speech. You see, there, there is a, the, in that verse, Jesus picks up the issue of understanding, comprehension. Why can't they comprehend because they don't want to listen to what he's saying. We don't want to hear that. Remember, also, when Jesus is speaking to the churches in Revelation, there are several phrases that he repeats often, and one of them is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because there are people sitting in the pews who cannot hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. They are deaf. Yeah, the, the sermon is a dog whistle. You can't hear it. Only the dogs can. And I'm using dogs in a good way. But this is not new. You see, this, uh, this manner of addressing the people 
and the people not comprehending that, that dynamic, that relationship between the preacher and the audience or the prophet and the people of God, that is a, a common theme that is developed throughout the Bible. Look at Isaiah chapter 28. Look at Isaiah chapter 28, beginning at verse 1. So that you're not surprised or taken back and think to yourself, you know, this is, why would Jesus deal with, with the people this way? No, God has been dealing with his people this way for centuries. And remember, God is, is uh, Christ is speaking to the Jewish people who would have known this history. And he said to them, they shall all be taught by God. Not that anyone has seen the Father at any time, the only begotten who is with the Father who came from the Father. He is the one who declares the Father. He's doing the teaching for the Father. It's as if uh, the Messiah is the substitute teacher, teacher for God. Man cannot bear to see God in all of His glory and to hear the words of God. Remember what happened on Sinai. What happened to the Jewish people when God spoke from the mountain? They told Moses, you talk to us. We cannot bear that voice. So God, God humbles himself, and he says, they, they couldn't bear. The Father says, they could not bear if I came in my glory. Therefore, son, would you humble yourself and take upon flesh and declare my words to them? And the son says, because you love this people and because I want to save them, I will. And he enters the world. And they still can't bear his speech. So in Isaiah chapter 28, beginning at verse 1, <clears throat> you have, uh, we hear these words, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is, fading, is, a, fading, is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys. To those who are overcome with wine. So he's speaking to Ephraim, the head of the verdant valleys is Samaria. And what God is saying, or the capital of Ephraim is Samaria, so more than likely he's referring to Samaria. And the point of th this chapter, if you uh, look at verse 2 also, is God is going to destroy these verdant valleys. He's going to send judgment, and that judgment is going to come in the form of the Assyrians. So Assyria is coming. And so, so God speaks this word of judgment, and because of the, the, the verdant valleys and all of the grapes and everything, he confronts them for their, their drunkenness, their drunkards. This is, must have been a sin that identified them. And, uh, now, but look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. After he sends this word of judgment through Isaiah to Ephraim, the people respond, kind of like, the people are responding back and forth to Jesus, where Jesus declares truth to them in John 6, and what do they do? They question him. Well, we know your mom and dad. How is this man going to give us his flesh to eat? These words are too hard. Who can understand them? And in the same voice almost, look at the people's response in chapter 9, after God declares this word of judgment. Whom will teach whom will he teach knowledge? 
And whom will he make to understand the message? Who's he going to teach? Those who, uh, those just weaned from milk, little babies? Those just drawn from the breast? Is that who God is going to teach? Are those the ones that are going to hear his word? For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And the, the, the Hebrew in verse 10, uh, some of your translations might read differently. They might read that way. But the Hebrew there is baby talk. It, it, it doesn't really say precept upon precept, line upon line. It, it actually says something like, uh, you know, this is my translation of the Hebrews, like goo goo gaga, mama dada. Uh, are you going to talk to us? Who are you, you going to talk to? The simple? And are you going to use baby speech? Because you know we're mature and we we understand the word of God. There's you know we don't need uh, your wisdom. But listen to what he says in verse 11. Here's, here, here's the judgment. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. So the reason why God is going to do verse 11, he's going to speak to them with people, people of stammering lips. He's going to speak to them in a way that is unclear, in a way that they're not going to understand, is because when he did speak to them, and when he offered them rest, they refused. They refused to listen to God. The issue was they, they had a hard heart. They were a hard-hearted people. They're so hard-hearted. Jesus comes. He's healing people all over the place, right? Now I'm going into the New Testament. He's feeding, feeding, healing people all over the place, providing all this food, teaching sound, the, the soundest doctrine, the, the greatest truths. He's unpacking before them. And what do they do? They gripe, complain. They fight with, with him. They fight with each other. And they, they can't bear what he's saying. It's driving them crazy. And God says, I'm going to speak to you with the people of stammering lips. Look at um, verse 12. Um, verse 13, excuse me. But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backwards and be broken and snared and caught. The reason why it sounded like that, you know, it sounded like uh, some little kid just learning how to verbalize and you can't really make sense of what he's saying. Is he asking me for water or to tie his shoe? I don't get it. Why is it like that? That they might be judged. That they might be blinded. Because I had spoken to them clearly and they refused to listen. Therefore, when the word comes, it will be cloaked. 
they will not understand because they are hard-hearted, that they might fall, that they might stumble, that they might be broken. Now in the Old Testament, um, uh, it was the Assyrians who were speaking a different language. Right? So the Assyrians come and they're speaking a different language, a language that the people don't understand. Literally, that's what Isaiah is talking about. It's people of a strange speech and a strange tongue. They're going to come and they're going to destroy the ungodly. But now when Jesus comes, the reason why his language is line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, is for the same reason. Because the people refuse to hear. They refuse to hear God. The issue was they were hard-hearted. They were hard-hearted. Well, what's the remedy to being hard-hearted? What's the remedy? How do, you, how do you fix that? By submitting yourselves to the Word of God. It's the attitude that it's, you see it a little bit. You see it a little bit in Nicodemus. In John chapter 3. Turn to John chapter 3. You, see, you begin to see it a little bit in John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and he says in verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. At least this much we know. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, Nicodemus still has questions. He still rebuffs Jesus. Jesus says, you must be born again. He says, how am I going to go back inside my mother's womb? I don't understand, right? Um, and and uh, how can these things be? How is it that these things can be true, Jesus? But at least he's tracking with Jesus. There's a sense of humility where he wants to come and he wants to learn at the feet of Jesus. Later on, after Jesus heals the blind man, and we're going to see this in, um, I believe it's chapter um, 8. No, that's the uh, adulterous woman. Um, where is it? Not uh, chapter nine. When Jesus heals uh, the blind man in chapter nine, Nicodemus, uh, he he stands up to the Jews, and he says to them, "Excuse me." Well, um, and Nicodemus stands up to the Jews. I can't find the reference at this point. He stands up to the Jews, and he says, would you, could, would you condemn a man who hasn't broken the law? And the Jewish leader says, are you one of his disciples? That humility and that willingness to be identified with Christ, and then at the crucifixion, he's one of the ones who goes to get Jesus' body, to prepare Jesus' body for burial. This humility now where there is a willingness to un identify with not only, oh, in Nicodemus' case, is not only with the teaching of Jesus, but with the person of Christ. And you see this humility in the disciples. You see this humility clearly in the disciples in this chapter. 
So Nicodemus is one example, and that humility sort of grows in Nicodemus as you read the Gospel of John and as you get to the end of the Gospel. But in chapter 6 in particular, you see it, it, it's really highlighted in the life of the disciples. Look at uh, verse 67. Jesus says to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Is that what you want to do too? Do you want to leave? But Simon Peter answered him. And and here's, here's the pivotal issue. Because their offense is with the teaching, with the doctrine that Jesus has been declaring. That's their problem. We cannot bear with this man's we cannot bear this man's teaching. We cannot continue to hear Jesus teach to us. Therefore, we're going to leave. We're going to depart. But look at uh, Peter's answer to Jesus' question. Lord, to whom shall we go? You are the only person who can make bread out of, you know, enough bread to feed 5,000 people from a few loaves. No. You're the only person who can walk on the sea. You're the only person who can heal the blind and cast out demons. You have the words of eternal life. He, he focuses upon the doctrine. He, he understands his uh, Christ's doctrine and teaching. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, um, note there that uh, Peter brings together all of the objections that the Jews had. had. Jesus says, what are the works that we must work? Uh, The Jews say, what are the works that we must work, that we might work the work of God? It actually reads that way. And Jesus says, the work that you have to do is believe. That's what you have to do. What does Peter say here? We have believed. We, be- we believe. In, p- in particular, what do you believe? Well, when Jesus is talking to the Jews, what does he say to them? You have to believe that I came from heaven. You have to believe in the incarnation. Not only must you believe in the incarnation, but you must believe that I came into this world to die for God's people. Look at what else Peter adds. So we believe your words. We believe your doctrines. You have the words of eternal life. The words that you give us are the source of eternal life, Lord. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the one that the Old Testament prophesied. Now, in the mind of the disciples, that at this point in the Gospels, as John is writing the history, that's not perfectly clear to them what that means. It's sort of that, that truth is developing, it's growing in their mind and it's growing in their heart. But in essence, what, what the truth that Peter is declaring is true, and he says it differently in Matthew 16. We, we uh, heard it this morning. What did he say? He said... Uh, Uh, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the same truth. It's the foundation upon which the church is built. 
Jesus says in turn to Peter, remember in Matthew, when he makes this uh, very similar statement, you are, uh, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And upon this rock, I will build my church. This is the foundational truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, which means that Peter is saying, we know enough about you because of your teaching that what God promised in the Old Testament about the Messiah, it's true about you. We don't understand all the implications. But that's uh, there the disciples and Peter as the representative shows this great humility, this willingness to submit to the teaching of Christ. A willingness to submit to the teaching of Christ. So... Um, willingness to submit to Christ's teaching. So, in verse 60, we have their misunderstanding. The people misunderstand. They do not understand Christ's teaching. The reason they don't understand it is because their hearts are hard. The remedy is humility. Humility is the remedy. And um, I'm going to stop there. I'll pick up at verse 61 next week. Because if we get into verse 61, it will probably be 1.30 before we leave here. So I'll stop there. Um, so a hard heart refuses the teaching of Christ. A humble heart receives his word, believes it, and obeys it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for sending him into the world and for his grace and humility uh, towards us. Um, we ask that you would help us, Lord, to have the mind that uh, Peter had, this mind of humility that willingly receives and accepts all of Christ's teaching. May he be the foundation of our life individually and the foundation of this church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.